Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Jonathan Derbyshire, Executive Comment Editor, and in this episode we'll be discussing a busy week in the general election campaign, in which all three main parties launched their manifestos. To do this, I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, the FT's political editor, Matt Singh, a polling and election expert who's crunching the numbers for the FT during the campaign, Julian Glover, writer and former number 10 advisor, Robert Shrimsley, the FT's editorial director, and the political commentator Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining me. The Conservatives launched their manifesto on Thursday and in doing so appeared to break with the decades-long Thatcherite consensus. The document declared that the Tories do not believe in untrammeled free markets and to that end promised new rules to assert more control over business with plans for fresh oversight over mergers and moves to tackle rip-off pricing in the energy and telecommunications markets. George, Theresa May denied at the press conference yesterday that there is such a thing as Mayism, but it's hard not to see a radical break with the tenets of Thatcherite faith here, isn't it? Well, I think so, and uh, it was fairly clear from page nine of the manifesto what this was all about. It was sending a signal to potential Labour voters who might switch to the Tories that she was binning the legacy of Margaret Thatcher. Now, whether that actually amounts to reality, I don't know, but certainly the rhetorical break was there. But certainly in substance, there was a sign that she was prepared to take on traditional Tory voters, particularly the pensioner vote, in an attempt to reposition the Tory party slap bang into Labour territory, which is, of course, why she was launching the manifesto in Halifax in an old carpet mill. I thought you were looking for a definition of Mayism. It was a unideological. In fact, she said ideology could be dangerous, unideological attempt to reposition the Tory party into where the new centre ground is. And she was borrowing policies from Ed Miliband's Labour manifesto of 2015, borrowing policies indeed from Nigel Farage's UKIP manifesto of 2015 to go for that Labour vote. Julian, you wrote an op-ed for the FT last week in which you argued that Mrs May has her finger on the pulse of Middle England. And this project is, as George just suggested, an unideological one. It's a return to traditional one-nation conservatism. Yes, she's the ultimate sort of English person, really, a figure who speaks to a large part of the country, not without class. She comes from an identifiable background, but somehow has an appeal much bigger than class. She doesn't just reach to one part of the country. I wonder whether George is right, whether it is a strategy. One of the things with political journalism is it's always tempting to impute strategy to everything and brilliant planning and... It's all extraordinarily organised. And the little I saw of politics when I was involved in government, there is no strategy. There's just sort of chaos and occasional instincts and a hope to do something right. I don't think they're sitting planning this with great brilliance. I think it's what they actually feel. It's what she feels. She's quite pragmatic. She likes to take issues as they come. She doesn't believe in excess. She clearly wants to restrain excess. One of the things bringing this manifesto together is a dislike of excess. And in that, she represents a huge chunk of the electorate. George, if there is some strategic coherence here, it's coming not, as Julian suggests, from Mrs May, but from one of her closest advisers, Nick Timothy. Yes, well, Nick Timothy is the person who's been writing the manifesto, part of a very small group of people who's been writing it. I mean, Theresa May, obviously, uh, John Godfrey, the head of the policy unit, but essentially it's Nick Timothy's work. And you go back through some of the things he was writing on the Conservative Home website when he was out in the wilderness, sort of, and you can see where he was coming from. He comes from a working-class Birmingham background. 
He believes that grammar schools gave him his route to where he is now. He doesn't believe in an inherited wealth cascading down through the generations. And I thought you saw that with the social care policy, which is an inheritance tax on demented people, unfortunately. Yeah, 100% inheritance tax for people with assets over £100,000. So he has repositioned the party. He sees a great opportunity. He also recognises, I slightly disagree with Julian here, he recognises the fact that Conservative voters have nowhere else to go at the moment. UKIP are dying on their feet at the moment. And therefore, it's a great opportunity for the Tory party to extend their appeal into parts of the country where, frankly, people never even considered voting Conservative in the past. Matt, Julian referred to some of the besetting sins of political journalism just now. Another one of those is the tendency to overestimate the effect that manifestos have on election campaigns. Yes, it's very difficult to actually measure the effect of manifestos. It's hard to disentangle manifesto launches, particularly when all three of the main parties do them on consecutive days. It's hard to disentangle one from another and also manifestos generally from all of the other sorts of things that happen during a political campaign, particularly as this time you don't have that many opinion polls. So it is quite hard to unpick the effects of them. And also, I mean, in terms of policies, it's been said time and time again that popular policies don't make a popular party necessarily. And there's been polling on policies from various manifestos and one poll in particular showed that on a number of things they asked the public was on the side of Labour's policy and not on the side of the Conservative policy and yet people were asked which of the parties has the most coherent or the best set of policies and they said the Conservatives so I think people view policies through the same sort of prism as they view everything else and if you don't have the perception at least of basic competence you don't get a hearing on policy. Julian I just want to go back to something Georgia was saying about Nick Timothy's so-called Erdington conservatism which referring to the area of Birmingham he grew up in. You're suggesting that Mrs May is a garden variety traditional Tory but there is an attempt as George was implying to widen the Tories appeal to working class voters particularly those disgruntled Labour voters who are turned off by the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn. There is. Undoubtedly, that's true. And Nick Timothy has certainly shaped this manifesto. Ben Gummer, I think, was also involved in writing parts of it. And they care about ideas and they are serious. One of the cheering things about this election is that I think all three of the main English parties have put forward manifestos with clear agendas, clear ideas, quite distinct. Even the Lib Dem manifesto has a lot of interesting stuff in it. So at one level, we're describing this election as incredibly boring because it's very private. Media don't get much access. On television, it's dull. It's all about Theresa May. Underneath, the country is being given a real choice. And I think that's a genuine thing. And one thing about the manifesto, we were talking about its impact on the election. I don't think this manifesto is aimed too much at shaping the election. What it's aimed at is getting an agenda for four or five years of government after the election, and in particular getting permission from the House of Lords to pass various laws. It's a bit arcane as to whether the Lords will actually nowadays obey a manifesto, but saying things like repealing the Fixed Term Parliament Act in the manifesto make it much easier to do it if they want to, to actually press on with it. So they're already ahead. They know they're winning. They'd be very surprised if they didn't win quite well. But they're thinking, what do we do on day one? And how do we avoid being defined totally by Brexit? On a very practical level, you can see it's a manifesto written by a party which is convinced it's going to win and doesn't need every single vote. So they've swept away a lot of those gimmicky locks and breaks that George Osborne and David Cameron introduced into the Tory manifesto in 2015, the triple lock on pensions, the tax lock guaranteeing no tax rises, and very few hostages to fortune in terms of spending commitments as well, which has frustrated those of us who have been trying to cost this manifesto. There aren't really very many additional spending commitments. I agree with Julian. It's a manifesto to make government as easy as possible and to the extent it's necessary to say to the House of Lords, this is in the manifesto, you've got to let this go through. It's a huge improvement on the last Conservative manifesto, which was so dreadful, I doubt anybody involved writing it, certainly 
not involved in the government actually read the whole thing. It's quite clear the Chancellor hadn't read it when he went against it. Well, and George it was one's been trashing it, of course, in the columns of the Evening Standard ever yeah. since. And he was meant to be in charge of it. Yes. George, is there an element of overconfidence here? I mean, the Tories are taking certain parts of their natural constituency for granted. You mentioned the elderly, and this manifesto is certainly markedly less generous to the old than previously. And then there's business who've reacted, it's fair to say, with not great enthusiasm to some of the proposals contained in this document. Well, you could say they're taking them for granted, or as I was saying earlier, there's a crude calculation that they've got nowhere else to turn. Business, of course, doesn't have a vote in itself. The older voters that will be put off by the ending of the triple lock, the means testing of the winter fuel allowance, this new charge on social care, where else are they going to turn? So they've made that calculation. But I think there is a danger. I suppose what it will come down to is, in government, is this going to be quite as Christian democratic, anti thatcher as the tone of the manifesto would appear? Because if you start to go to a situation where, talking about business, where ministers are intervening on a regular basis in the normal day-to-day business of takeovers and mergers, I think that would cause a real stink with business. And of course, we haven't mentioned this yet, but how she handles Brexit, very little detail in the manifesto about how she's going to handle Brexit or even an inkling that she understands just how complicated this is going to be. Julian, what George says reminds one of the old saw that you uh, campaign in poetry and govern in prose. That's true and I think one of the great challenges that this manifesto will face in government is the inability of the British state to do many things quickly and well, partly because it's just hard, partly because I think the state doesn't have the capabilities. The civil service can't manage to do many of these things. David Cameron and George Osborne spent an awfully long time, seven years, making announcements about things that never happened and were soon forgotten. This manifesto may have some clearer pieces of legislation to take through, but legislation is actually a very minor part of what government does. And everybody in the civil service, every permanent secretary, every fast streamer is being focused on Brexit. Each department has huge anxieties. You know, Transport I used to be involved in, what happens to aviation? Will EasyJet have the right to fly from Britain to Europe next year? These things are not clear. The idea that they're at the same time going to bring in a new social compact and begin to reform the way that citizens interact with large power bases in Britain, if they didn't have Brexit, they might have a chance. I don't think they've got a chance of making most of this stuff happen. So in a way, the disappointment could be all the greater. Matt, as we've been discussing, the Conservatives are clearly trying to park their tanks on Labour's lawn with a number of policies which look as though, as George said, have been lifted straight from Ed Miliband's 2015 Labour manifesto, noticeably where energy pricing is concerned. Yet the story of the polls this week has been one of a modest Labour bounce, if not a surge. What's going on? Well, there's a few things going on. I mean, if you look back to the start of the campaign, Labour was polling in the mid-20s where it had been for some time before the Conservatives already had their initial bounce from calling the election and collapse of UKIP mostly to their benefit. What's happened since then, and it has been a relatively gradual process, Labour's gone from the mid-20s to somewhere around or just over 30%. And as you said, there's a piece about it earlier in the week. And if anyone's interested, there's a Facebook video that I've done with John Bo Murdoch, which will be on the FT's Facebook page talking about this in a bit more detail. But essentially, they've squeezed people who voted for them in 2015 and have gone to, say, don't know, or some of them to the Lib Dems or to UKIP. And so they're getting votes, but it seems to be from a relatively finite source. The votes that Labour had lost directly to the Conservatives, which of course count double because it's Labour going down, Conservatives vote going up in the seats that matter, they have not come back. That looks pretty solid. And also, we're talking specifically about Labour, but if you look at the Conservative vote share, last time I described it as strong and stable, and it's I haven't seen anything to change that because there was one poll that showed it dropping slightly, but in general it's been stable in the upper 40s, which by recent standards is phenomenally high. 
George, Matt was saying that we shouldn't overestimate the effect that manifestos have on campaigns, but there's one provision in the Tory manifesto which does seem to have cut through and has caused some controversy, and that's the plan to get the elderly to contribute Mm. more to the cost of their care. Yeah, I think that is the one thing which I think is going to blow up in this Tory manifesto. You know, this is the danger of drawing up a manifesto in secret, not road testing ideas. This is a hugely complicated area, the subject of multiple government inquiries over the last few years. There's a deliberate piece of social engineering at the heart of it that I was alluding to earlier, this idea that wealthy people with long-term conditions like dementia will be paying a 100% inheritance tax over £100,000, which I think will rankle with many Conservatives. It will rankle, I think, once the euphoria of the election has passed with the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph when they're coming to report this. And the interesting thing is that the original Tory proposal to deal with this, the Dilnop proposals, the £72,000 cap on the total you could be asked to spend on social care, that's in legislation and was due to come in in 2020. So there will be a big legislative bust-up on this, at which point Conservative MPs in the shires are going to be bashed around the head by their voters. And this is when the rubber really hits the road for Mayism and the Theresa May project, because it's where the interests of ordinary working families who might only dream of having assets of £100,000 to pass on to their families clash with the interests of Tories who own houses worth 500000 or more than a million pounds. Julian, so much for uh, Mrs May's feel for the feelings of Middle England and the elderly. She may not have the feel for some of the wealthier parts of England. And I was talking to one Conservative MP from the north of England who's campaigning in marginal seats all around. They're not allowed to campaign in their own seat, much to the bewilderment of their activists. And his view was that Mrs May is incredibly popular with the switchers from Labour, people who've never thought of voting Conservative. A bit higher up the scale, you know, you get a bit of a gravel drive and maybe a gate and some nice hedging. They quite like her, but they sort of quite like David Cameron. They're being swept along a little bit because the papers are telling them and the Telegraph is very much in favour. The Mail is ecstatic. But they're not quite as sold on her as everybody currently thinks. That doesn't mean they're going to turn against her. But I rather admire her for trying to do something brave. I think in politics we often say, why doesn't politics ever do anything brave and tackle the big issues? They're all ducking this issue of of discrimination about young against old. David Willits wrote about it. Nothing happened under Cameron. Well, she is trying. So I give her credit for trying, and it will have consequences. But if she's got a big majority, she might as well do something useful with it. One of the things that will happen inside the Conservative Party, assuming there is a very large majority, is we will start to see strands of Conservative, not exactly different factions or parties within one greater party, but really clear identifiable types of conservative with sets of views emerging. And we have to start seeing that as where politics is taking place, not Labour versus conservative. In the 80s, when Margaret Thatcher had a huge majority, you did have this idea of the wets who were openly scornful of her, economic dries and and various other shire Tories. You could tell what type of Tory it was. I think that will happen again quite soon. And it might be quite interesting and good for politics. Matt, Julian referred to Mrs May's appeal to Labour switchers. Does that account for for the Tories' large and fairly consistent lead in the polls? I think there's a few things. So obviously a big part of what's happened in the last weeks or months has been down to the collapse of UKIP. But if you actually look at the level of the Conservative lead, it isn't hugely bigger than it was at some point earlier this year. Some of the things that have happened, primarily the Conservative vote has gone up from taking votes from UKIP. Labour's vote had gone down from votes they've been losing to Don't Know or to the Lib Dems or even some to UKIP as well. It's not like the old days where you just have a sort of boring 4% of voters in the middle of the bell curve just switching between parties. It's a lot more nuanced. But one thing that we have certainly seen in this parliament that we didn't really see in the last parliament because it was all about where the Lib Dem defectors went to and where the UKIP surge came from. This time you are actually seeing the return of people switching directly between the two biggest parties. So that does 
certainly account for a big chunk of it. And that's going to create a House of Commons with a whole load of MPs representing bits of Britain you couldn't imagine having Conservatives, and their loyalty will be to Theresa May, and their agenda will be less about inheritance tax for the rich. Many of the houses mm. in those seats will not cost yeah. vast amounts of money. And I can see quite a pitting of, of the traditional Shire, to the extent there are Shire Conservatives anymore, but the traditional Conservative, you know, suburban, mm. commuter land, rural market towns, against all sorts of places, not just in the north, whose interests will be entirely different. And there will be almost a clash of class and economic warfare inside the party. And right now, the people in the ascendancy are the people who represent the new parts of conservatism. Things like Chief Whip Gavin Williamson. He's not a traditional mm. Grand Chief Whip in the style of Francis Urquhart, we all saw on television. And some of the Shire Tories are beginning to worry. They're saying we went to private school. Does that mean we can't have a job? What on earth? They're so used to the entitlement of success. Do you just encourage me, actually? It reminds me a bit of the 1992 election when we lobby journalists held our heads in our hands when John Major won. And we thought, another five years of John Major as Prime Minister. Oh, my God. But as Julian said, the Tories are very good at organising opposition to themselves. And that's exactly what happened in the 1992 Parliament. And actually, funny enough, it was probably the most interesting mm. Parliament I can remember to cover as a journalist. And there'll be a lot of bored MPs who aren't ministers and who aren't PPSs and haven't got much to do and they'll have to talk to journalists. Well, we'll reconvene in a year's time and see whether you're both right. Labour's manifesto was leaked last week, giving the other parties, particularly the Conservatives, time to subject its costings to some pretty merciless scrutiny. The Liberal Democrats also launched their manifesto this week, but struggled to get a hearing amid the fallout from a slightly odd joint press conference held by Theresa May and Philip Hammond, the Chancellor, which seemed to confirm swelling rumours about the uneasy relationship at the top of the government. Let's turn to the Liberal Democrat manifesto. Miranda, the most striking thing about it was its commitment to a second referendum on the terms of Britain's departure from the EU. How's that going down? Well, not that well, it has to be said. The Lib Dems have benefited in some ways since the referendum from being the most clearly identifiable pro-Remain party. And it seems as if they might have made a slight tactical error carrying this through into an unexpected snap general election. If they'd waited, you know, until we were in the weeds of the negotiation and it was clear that the deal was going wrong, for example, it might have paid electoral dividends right now. They have not caught the mood of the nation. We know from YouGov studies that those who voted remain, the 48%, it's now more like about 22% who still think we should stay in the EU. So that's a huge problem. They're fishing in a shrinking pool. And I think also because the conversation around the election has changed to one that's about a binary leadership choice between May and Corbyn, that effect an even more severe squeeze than the third party usually suffers from and also actually the fact that it seems to have moved on beyond Brexit it's almost as if people have accepted Brexit and want to talk about other things on those other things I have to say I thought the Lib Dem manifesto was quite interesting because it seems to have gone back to a kind of pre-coalition era of interesting slightly outside the box thinking for example this idea of regulating a cannabis market and taking advantage of that in terms of money into the treasury coffers but it is striking to me having watched the party really closely in recent years 2010 you had a Lib Dem manifesto with for example the famous irresponsible pledge on tuition fees which they couldn't then effect in government then by 2015 they were producing a manifesto which was a ridiculously detailed program for government and of no real interest to the general public they seem to have gone firmly back to their kind of 1990s attitude to policy proposals which is to have eye-catching different distinctive positions on brexit it doesn't look as if it's going to work for them robert do you agree with that this is the brexit election in which no one is talking about brexit i do agree i mean i oh dear the lib dems are having just a rotten time and I have to say, you can see the party has been hollowed out by what happened 
in the last election and it's clearly happening all over the place. I mean, just start with the manifesto. The one thing about a manifesto launch is that it guarantees you substantial television coverage on the day you launch if you have the sense to launch before the lunchtime news. So what do they do? They launch it at 6.30. Nobody's got the slightest idea what's in the Lib Dem manifesto because they didn't even manage to get themselves a top slot on the television news. The only thing that anybody will know for sure about the Lib Dems is the Brexit point that Miranda's made. And as she rightly says, this isn't turning out to be as much of a Brexit election as people might have thought. There's two other points working against them. The first is that they benefited in the past substantially from being the tactical anti-Tory vote. I think in 2010 there were something like 250, 260 seats where they were in second place. That fell to 60 at the last election, which means that if you don't want to vote Conservative, in most places, Lib Dems are not your first choice. And then finally is Tim Farron, who is probably a very nice man and seems a decent chap. But the truth is that the Lib Dems have always done best when they've had a leader who was bigger than the party, who could pull the party up with them, big national figures. And he isn't one of those. So they're in a terrible hole and there doesn't seem to me to be any sign out of it. I think Robert's absolutely right. And on your first point, Robert, I think this is particularly crucial. And in fact, the complementarity in terms of the map geographically under first past the post is to do with people either voting Lib Dem or Labour against the Tories. And also just in terms of the kind of electoral pool of people that you're attracting, it's the same folks. And if there isn't an easy interchange between Labour voters and Lib Dem voters, you've got an enormous structural problem on your hands under first past the post. The only place where the dynamics seem slightly different are in university towns and urban seats where there's such a strong metropolitan elite Remainer type pool still left that the Lib Dems could benefit from that. You're talking Cambridge, you're talking South West London and also in Scotland where there's this very interesting other binary election going on between nationalism and unionism and the Lib Dems have this ability to say well we're the only party who are both unionist and Remainers and Scotland is remains much more in favour of softening Brexit than England. Look you're talking about two or three seats it's minimal stuff but it could work. But I think when this election was called we all looked at it and thought you know what Lib Dems have a chance to get back maybe 10, 15 well I did. Miranda's shaking her head she knew better than no. me. Since Jeremy Corbyn took over as leader of the Labour mm. Party it's given the Lib Dems a problem and the idea that that was an opportunity for the Lib Dems is just a totally misread. Should have, it should have been an opportunity for them. That actually, Not in a there was a, there was a gap for people who wanted to vote a certain way and we're actually going to see that it's limited to places like Twickenham and Vince Cable and as you say some university towns and what we're seeing is the Labour vote hardening a little bit possibly I think because Labour minded voters who aren't in love with Jeremy Corbyn are beginning to think they can safely vote Labour without it leading to a Labour government. But it's not just that the Lib Dems are being squeezed in university towns and the metropolises by Labour. They're also being squeezed in their former heartlands in the southwest, aren't they? By Mrs May's big tent. She's going after those parts of the country fairly aggressively. Yes, but I think it's much more of a fundamental structural problem there. I mean, for example, in the southwest, UKIP are not standing. So a lot of those votes go back to their natural conservative home. But the psychology of it is very much like 2015. You know, the Conservatives did an absolutely brilliant targeting operation in the last 10 days or so in those southwest seats. And it was all about, you're scared of Ed Miliband being in Downing Street, so you have to vote Tory. And that line can be played in spades this time, because, of course, Corbyn is much more scary to a moderate voter than Ed Miliband ever was. The other thing is, that if, if you look at the way the polls are shaping up in this election, as Miranda says, it's a much more binary contest than ones we've seen for quite a long time. If you take out Scotland, where obviously the SNP are a major factor, you're going from a place where the two major parties got just over two thirds of the vote 
to a place where they're probably going to get 80% of the vote between them. That's a substantial shift. All the other parties are being squeezed out. And that's really interesting, actually, because we've all been looking at the charts for the last few years and watching the graph do the opposite thing. The overarching historical story is this kind of secular decline in membership and support for the two main parties. But this election is proving to be an exception to that. One of our colleagues was drawing a comparison, not with 1983, but with 1974. And I think there's something to that. I still remember 1974. It's not just that uh, Labour and the Conservatives are running on uh, respectively Wilsonite and Heathite programmes, but it's that the Liberal Democrats, like their predecessors, the Liberals, are being squeezed to be a party of around between six and eight seats. It's extraordinary. And this is two years ago. They were part of a government and unfortunately comforting themselves with internal polling that showed them they were going to retain these seats where the local Lib Dem MP was well liked and where they'd been the incumbent since the 90s. That turned out to be a fantasy, unfortunately. And I think a similar sort of fantasy has been indulged in this idea that Corbyn gave the Lib Dems an opportunity. I don't think it was ever an opportunity. I think that having a frighteningly left-wing Labour leader scares people back into the arms of the Conservative Party, and that is a kind of fundamental law of first-past-the-post politics. There's been a lot of discussion about what will happen inside the parliamentary Labour Party in the event of a heavy defeat. What happens to the Lib Dems after this? Where do they go? Who do they look for as a possible leader to succeed Tim Farron? It's quite hard to answer that until we know what the shape of the parliamentary Lib Dem Party is going to be. If, as I happen to think, Vince Cable probably comes back, you do have a figure of some national stature, But is Tim Farron about to give it up? I don't know. And I mean, I think the biggest problem for the Lib Dems, if they emerge from this election, you know, with 10, 12, 15 seats, is who cares? Actually, no one's going to be paying attention anyway. So unless you get this sudden breakaway from the Labour Party, which doesn't particularly look likely, who actually cares what's going on in the Lib Dems? That's their biggest problem. It's very interesting because one of the main selling points that Farron has got left to him in these last three weeks is essentially to say, you know, Labour is still missing in action and after polling day, it looks like Jeremy Corbyn's going to do OK, so the Labour Party will still be distracted by its own internal strife. Only we, the Lib Dems, can provide proper scrutiny as Brexit's going through. But as Robert rightly says, if you have such small numbers, it's hard to do that. It's also hard to do it if you can't cooperate with the Labour Party on the opposition benches. And again, this enormous gulf between the still moderate centre-left Lib Dems and a left-wing Labour actually proves to be a potential drawback as to how you function in a parliamentary context after June the 9th as well, if you're going to provide the proper scrutiny of the government during Brexit that you're promising. And talking about cross-party collaboration during the campaign, the dream of uh, a progressive alliance has turned out to be a dead letter, hasn't it? Well, again, you see, if Corbyn is toxic to the voters, how can you offer that? And, uh, you know, I had a bit of a set to this morning with a Labour canvasser at the tube station who didn't have an answer to the Corbyn question. And this proves a real obstacle to people who are trying to kind of trade votes or set up any kind of anti-Tory voting pattern this time. It may recover in the future if the Labour moderates can get their act together. The other point about it is that even where it is happening, it's going to be less significant than the other shift that's happened in this election, which is the shift of UKIP votes to the Conservative Party. And does this leave then liberal-minded voters with a small L politically homeless? I think that's a big issue, actually. And I think it's part of this divided nation that we're all getting used to since it's been exposed in the Brexit vote because, for example, that sort of small-l liberal mindset has turned out to be very much in the urban centres. I mean, it's not just a London phenomenon, Manchester, Bristol, Scotland more generally... 
but you know who can speak for people now because there does seem to be a mood and we saw it very strongly in the Tory manifesto yesterday of trying to kind of in the words of Nigel Farage take back the country for others than the liberally minded metropolitan souls who have been pushing the direction of policy for the last two decades Who will speak for Liberal England? We'll have to leave it there That's it for this week's episode of FT Politics Thank you very much to all the guests for joining me We'll be back next week for another instalment Thanks for listening 